Welcome to the Infinite Women podcast. I'm your host, Alison Tyra, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kira Lindsay, South Australia history advocate and author of the new biography, Wild Love, The Ambitions of Adelaide Ironside, the first Australian artist to astonish the world. Now, that's a pretty bold subtitle, so can you elaborate? One of the first things you kind of need to know about Adelaide is when she was 14 years old, she added uh a new name to her middle name um, and that was the name of Scott and she did that so that she could take each initial of her name and suddenly um, henceforth call herself Izzy as in Adelaide for A. She took each initial and basically created her own name. So here's a young girl in the 1840s who is self-constructing herself based on who she wanted to become. You know, she is, as she described um, herself, an um, aspirant. She is aspiring to something other than what was typically expected of, of the women of her age, which was to marry, to be a wife and a mother. So she was a woman of bold ambitions. What she wanted to do was to become the um, acknowledged mistress of art in the Southern Hemisphere. And so that's no small order, right? And to do that, she um, she trained um, and she engaged as a professional portraiture in um, 1840s and early 1850s colonial Sydney at a time where really there was nobody else in the colony who was making money as a professional portraitress who was a woman. And um, and she received enough encouragement, including receiving a silver medal um, for exhibiting her work at the, the first exhibition of materials to go up to Australian materials to go off to an Australian to an international exhibition. She received a, a silver medal for her art there, the only woman to do so, and this encouraged her to follow that collection um, off to Paris and then to Rome, where her vision was that she would train with the masters for a whole decade so that she could come back and fresco the public buildings of Sydney with Republican frescoes of the future history of this country because she believed, she had this vision that Australia would become a republic and that she would be able to capture that moment. Now, there's just so many unusual things about just that little bit of a story there, Alison, um, that would surprise most people who know anything about Australian history. First, here's a woman with different ambitions. Here's a woman who believes in republicanism at a time where which we don't really associate with republicanism. And here's a woman who goes off and pursues her ambitions um, include so that she can achieve these high goals. But, in fact, when you start to drill down deeper, into the historical context, you find that there were, in fact, quite a number of women at this time who were going to Italy to live lives of greater professional and personal freedom because they could do so there in ways that they couldn't in their home countries of America or England or Ireland or Scotland or even other parts of Europe like Russia. There in Italy they could live a, um, a life that was usually cheaper, but they could also um, typically find masters either from uh, who were Italians or other expatriates who had gone to live there who were, who were prepared to take them more seriously as artists. So that's what Adelaide did. She went to um, Italy with the intention of living there as long as the siege of Troy, that is for um, a decade, so that she could come back and um and take on that role as a, a leading figure in the in the artistic worlds of Sydney. Alas, alas, she achieved so many things, but not the return to her homeland. With artists, I'm always curious, how would you describe her style? Like what tells you this is a work by Adelaide Ironside? Mm, that's a great question. And one of the things that really had me scratching my head when I first started to um, look at her archive I've always been really interested in how we might represent women who are lost from the historical record. And I became particularly interested with a group known as native born or currency um, Australian women, currency lasses, because they were the first generations of women born to European parents in the colony. Very often their parents or their grandparents were convicts. Um, so there was an idea that these people might be tainted 
by the convict stain in some ways. And so they were typically disparaged on the kind of the class system, looked down upon by free British settlers. But what I found really surprising is when you looked at the currency lads, that is their male counterparts, they had this really extraordinary sense of patriotism. They, they were, the colonial records say, always swearing, punctuating their word. There's every sentence with the word bloody and constantly drinking and sh- and toasting their country and saying how fabulous it was. You know, it does sound a lot like contemporary Australian nationalism, right? So my question was, well, where are the women in this story? And I went looking for um, native-born currency lasses who might have some sort of a record, who could help tell that story. And I found that there was hardly anything. In fact, in my, my first book is about one woman who had something of an archive, Marianne Gill, who was my great, great, great aunt. And she only had a record because she was involved in the great romantic scandal, a thwarted elopement in Sydney in 1848, where her father caught her trying to run away with the Attorney General's wayward son and um, and almost murdered him by shooting at him twice. Anyway, that's another book and another story, but I kept looking around for um, some for currency lasses who might have a record, some sort of historical record, and that is how I stumbled on Adelaide Ironside. Unlike most other women of her era, she was born around the same time as the first woman that I wrote about and in Sydney. But she had a much more extensive record. So in the State Library of New South New South Wales, there is correspondence to her and her mother, who Martha, who went with her on this expedition. And there's something like a hundred letters or more. Some are from John Ruskin, you know, the most important art critic and social reformer of the ni- 19th century, at least he would think so. Um, from James, Sir James Clark, who um, is probably best known for being the doctor who tended to the poet John Keats as he was dying and then died in Rome in 1821. He also looked after Adelaide Ironside when she was sick with tuberculosis and eventually died in Rome some 40 years later. So there were letters from all these, you know, what we might call eminent Victorians to Adelaide and her mother, but there was hardly any record um, from of Adelaide. You could hardly find her voice, right? So there were about 14 letters from her, from her and they were really captivating. I found some in the Mitchell records, but some in a box that happened to have been found by a tenant who was living in a property belonging to her um, descendants. And this box was probably going to be thrown out, except for the fact that this woman thought, oh, old letters probably should go somewhere. And she dumped it at the Society of Australian Genealogy, where it sat in the cellar for a very long time. But inside that, uh, Adelaide's letters to her friends and some really moving letters that um, allowed me to triangulate that story. So when I tried to find Adelaide's voice, obviously I wasn't going to get that much from the letters. So I continued to look around. I found that there were over 20 poems that she wrote and published in the colonial newspapers, many of which contain that same fiery passion for republicanism. But they're also bizarre and mystical. You know, they're from a voice that is very hard for us to understand as 21st century Australians. So that also made me start to try and find out more about her. And then finally I came to her archive. Now, this is a really interesting collection of work. Some of it is based in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Some are in smaller regional holdings like Newcastle and Benalla. Um, There's quite a large collection in a private um, possession. And um, and then there are bits and pieces in what is called her commonplace diary. And these include what we might call scribble scrabbles, which she probably did while she was scrying crystal balls. Okay, so what do we make of this? There are so many different types of works. There are sketches. There's no landscapes. That is probably one definitive piece. There are portraits that are done in pastels. There are sketches in pencil. There's um, things in charcoal. There's... Um, works that are copies of famous artists of the time. 
Um, and then there are a series of oil paintings that she did once she had acquired sufficient skill and she was living in Rome and she had sort of been trained by the masters. And what's really interesting about this is that although the topics of these oil paintings might, by our opinion, be conservative, the very fact of her presuming to work in oil in what was then known as a historical um, genre was extraordinarily ambitious, right? Because women were not, Ruskin himself said, women can't be artists, right? They can't paint. You know, the best that they should do is go and sketch pheasant wings or, you know, bits of fruit or apples or shells or feathers. Um, they should never aspire to something that involves originality because they don't have that capacity. Yeah. <laughs> For those who uh, don't get the visual cues here, <laughs> Alison is making a series of faces now, which is pretty much uh, the kind of face that uh, I made when I read those comments and I think probably Adelaide would have made as well and many of her female contemporaries did too. So what she did, what she produced when she was in Rome was three or four very ambitious oil paintings, all of which focus on female, on women's subjects in one way or another. And that tells us a lot. Most of her portraits, 90% of her portraits are of women. Um, and so she was, she was celebrated for having a delicate sensibility, a beautiful eye, quiet feeling, deep but quiet feeling. These are the ways that she's typically described. But to be honest, one of the challenges that I had was to try and get my finger Get, try to really pinpoint an answer to your question, which is what is her style? I think she was working between styles. And in one of the letters from um, one of her advisors, they, they basically say to her, you need to stop copying other people's works and start to become more you know, trust your instinct and become more of an original. And I think that's it's actually quite um, an a telling comment because I think for many female artists of the period, when you think about Ruskin's comments, and which were very common at the time, common attitudes, it was very hard for them to um, find their original voice, their authority, let alone to be bold enough to express it. But Adelaide did express it. And I think one of the things my biography has found is that she was at this brink of making a breakthrough in her work. That's what my kind of meditation on her art has led me to the conclusion that she started off in the tradition of neoclassicism, which is um, really quite focused on purity and on divine proportions. It's very influenced by those um, Greek notions of the golden mean. Um, and she was trained by masters who espoused those kind of values. But she went to the London exhibition of 1862 where she exhibited her work and she got to see the work of the pre-Raphaelites. And at that time, I think she realised that she was going down the wrong path because she managed to secure um, the attentions of John Ruskin and he agreed to teach her. So in the summer of 1865, she manages to convince Ruskin, who was, as we know, not very sympathetic to female artists, but there was such excitement about Adelaide at this time. People were describing her as a genius. You know, people were organising dinners in London to come and visit the genius fresh from Rome who had come to London. So everybody was kind of talking about her. Her work was being sold for £500 to £1,000. Um, she was kind of one of the it girls of this moment. And so Ruskin agreed to take her on. But surprise, surprise, what he decided to do was strip her of all her influences, her neoclassical influences, because he believed that she'd been spoiled um, and asked her to focus on just learning how to draw a shell right, an egg right, um, a stone right, a feather right. And these are the last works that Adelaide produced. But they they represent this, you know, like if she had spent 10 years of her life acquiring expertise in neoclassicism and showing what she could do there, you know, her shift to go and training with Ruskin was a massive change in 
perception and impossibility. She was, in a sense, you know, she'd reached the, the pinnacle of one style of art, but that style of art, that neoclassical approach, was actually on the nose now in England. So while it was still very popular in Italy, it was no longer. It was laughter. It was a kind of source of derision. It was considered the old, you know, it was out of date, no longer um, attractive. You know, the pre-Raphaelites had changed the art world and everybody was into that kind of hyper-realism with a, a high degrees of allegory and drama and emotion and vivid colour. And um, I believe that Adelaide was on the brink of making the transition into that art world. And there's enormous courage, right, to have become so good in one art form and then decide to let it go and embark as a beginner. Unfortunately, you know, she was so sick with tuberculosis at that time that she never got to realise that potential. And when she was spending time with Ruskin, he would talk about um, her as having a fireworky nature, being impulsive and hard to understand. Her hands were always shaking. Um, and the, the small, beautiful sketches that she did for him very careful. Um, they're the last works that she ever did. She um, returned from e England back to Rome in the summer of uh, 1866 and she was dead. Um, she died in Rome in April 1867 at the age of 36. So it was a short life. It was a, a life lived passionately, one of risks, one of great ambition, but one that didn't perhaps realise um, its potential as an artist. So when we look at her art, I actually don't think that's the real story of her life. You know, I don't think that understanding the significance of Adelaide Ironside is about understanding the significance of her art. I rather think that that is a suite of records that help us to understand her and we need to put her in the broader context of that pursuit of women of her age that were going for greater personal and professional freedom in Italy. And what is most interesting for me about that is that those women were all connected into um, the first wave of feminism. They were all espousing to change the lives of women by creating women's only reading rooms, by creating art schools that were just for women, by insisting that women be allowed to be taught at the Royal Academy when they never been allowed to before, um, and by being involved in political movements like the Married Women's um, Causes Act, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, we often think that this group of women have no agency, this group of mid-19th century women. But what I see is that they were exploring using art, their artistic training, which they had been given in order to become good wives and mothers, but they were using this to become independent, professional women who could make their own income, think for themselves and make changes in their life economically, socially, and politically. When we're talking about the context that she was in, you were mentioning being part of this first generation of European-descended people born in Australia. So can you tell us a little bit more about her specific background and her family? Mm, thank you for that question, because we've sort of raced ahead to, you know, the 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 last part of her life. But the early part is is really quite interesting too, fascinating in fact. So she was born in, in Sydney in, in 1831. Her father was a man named John, James Ironside, who arrived in Sydney in the 18. Um, 20s and he was a Scottish auctioneer and broker um, who had come from a very small country town um, around the, the Smugglers Coast around um, Banff area but her mother was another native-born currency lass and her name was Martha Rebecca um, Redmond and she was the daughter of a convict forger named Mary Redmond or Re Mary George and Adelaide's mother's father was a man named John Redmond who was a first fleet marine who arrived on board the Charlotte um, in 1788. So when those ships all sailed into the waters of Waran as Sydney Harbour is known, um, John Redmond was there working as a um, a young Marine. He was in his 20s there and um, he was one of the first to set up um, the settlement in Sydney Cove, which became known as the as the camp. And, um, and he then, 
he had a he had a try as being living in Norfolk Island as a farmer, but he eventually became a member of the Night's Watch and then the Chief Constable Jailer um, in Sydney, the Chief Jailer in Sydney. So he bought property right down the bottom of George Street near what it, near Circular Quay, and he had a place called Redmond Court where he ran his own timber lugging business. He built properties. Um, he made his fortune and he ran the jail, which was just across the road. So when um, so when Adelaide was born, her parents lived nearby to the Redmonds, um, but that marriage didn't survive. Adelaide's mother, Martha, had another son and he died early. And shortly after that, he died at about the age of six months. And shortly after that, the, the couple separated and uh, Martha and, and James Ironside separated. And so basically Adelaide Ironside was brought up by a single mother who made um, made a living for the family, allowed them to kind of survive financially by teaching piano lessons. And what I find so interesting about their lives is that Martha was fluent in German and French and Italian. So she spoke several languages. So here we have these ideas, you know, there's this kind of stereotypes I think of the colonial era you know this period of the 1820s and 30s that everybody's walking around in bedraggled threads and you know they're speaking with accents and they've got bad teeth and you know there's a lot of r's and groaning and <laughs> criminality and um and brutality and all of that is true but what the um the story of Adelaide Ironside and her mother Martha Ironside reveals is that there was in fact this um, also a culture of gentility and education um, and, and some refinement that women were able to enjoy even in those circumstances. And, you know, as Chief Jailer of Sydney, John Redmond was not really high up in the class order at all, and yet he's he managed to ensure that his daughter could have that kind of education. And I speculate that it was actually... Um, John Redmond's wife, Mary Redmond, who um, provided Martha and then Adelaide with that kind of um, education and then those social expectations and ambitions. Because in 18th and 19th, early 19th century British society, forgery was a crime that was most associated with the middle and upper classes. To be a successful forger, you had to be able to write, paint you had to be literate and to pass the notes successfully you also had to have a degree of flair and performativity right now having said that mary mary redmond couldn't have been so successful as a forger because she was eventually transported but um nonetheless she and her father who was also transported clearly had been running this forgery business for some time before they were both transported. And so what we have in Adelaide's background is a First Fleet Marine and a convict forger who have been part of the beginning of European settlement in Sydney. And that gave them, as currency lasses, a strong sense of entitlement and what they called priority, that um, whatever the British sterling classes, the free classes might have thought about themselves, these people felt that they had been there from the beginning and that this was their country and that they were entitled to some recognition. Now, that is clearly a very complicated set of assumptions that um, I do try and unpack and problematise in my biography because they use this phrase native born to describe themselves. And that in itself is just, it tells you so much. There's deliberately, I think, or maybe they're not. They're on one way, whether it's conscious or not, and I think it is conscious, um, appropriating the word native to position themselves as having a claim to the land, to the country, um, at the exclusion of both the free settler classes who have come later and the, what they call the immigrants or the migrants, the immigrants, immigrants who came later 
and also the First Nation people who were commonly known as natives at the time. So I was, you know, like I'm an Australian historian, I'm an Australian citizen, I'm really passionate about these questions about the problematics of nationalism and a really big part of my inquiry has always been what were these people thinking and how has the kind of the inception thoughts that they had as native-born people, as self-entitled um, native-born people, how has that continued to have some influence on the way that Australians think about themselves? I think we can trace some of contemporary Australian racism, the racism that is inherent in Australian nationalism to the attitudes and assumptions that are inherent in that term native-born. So, you know, when I'm writing about Adelaide Ironside, this is not a hagiography. I'm really keen to situate her within her context as someone who's implicit in the colonial project. So we're not just going to be romancing Adelaide as this, you know, great, heroic, ambitious woman, even though she is all those things. She's certainly exceptional in so many ways, but she is also very much implicit in the colonial project. Um, and... You know, I, one of the things I found really interesting is that try as I might to find references to First Nations people in her archive, there are only three references to her in her poems, which were um, dead in, in two poems that she wrote about the Prussian explorer Ludwig Leichhardt. And in both of those, she's talking about Aboriginal people in really kind of romantic tropes, either they're savage blacks or they're the noble natives. Um, so there are those sort of things that we see. And there's one other tantalising reference that she makes in an 1853 letter when she's living on the North Shore, which was then a very kind of sequestered retreat, as she describes it. And she talks about how she often feels when she's walking in the bush, presumably to look for her wildflowers, which we'll get to in a minute, because she painted all these wildflowers. But she talks about imagining that she's sharing this land with antique eremites mm, right so here we are we're in this high victorian language right this is the highfalutin world of of the mid-victorian world where they use wacky terms you know they're in this sort of late romantic mindset where they're just confabulating almost everything but what is an eremite an eremite is a kind of um a hermit philosopher figure who lives in the deserts, who lives in this kind of heightened world of um, mysticism, in fact, and Adelaide was a mystic. And so she's imagining the people, the First Nation people around her, and we know that First Nations people were very present on the North Shore at this time. I've done investigations into that by looking at a number of other sources. So she's thinking of herself as sharing um, sharing, coexisting with um, First Nations people as ancient Eremites. I think in that, for all its romanticising, is potentially some sort of a recognition that these that um, First Nations people had their own spirituality, their own philosophy, and that they could be compared to, you know, to figures um, that she admired um, who had their own cultural tradition. So, but other than that, there's hardly any references to um, to Aboriginal people. And so I wanted to try and address that in my book. And one of the ways I did that was to recover the wildflowers that she painted and make references to their um, to the uses that they had. So I've represented her her wildflowers all through the book and tried to reference where I can the way that they were used by First Nations people either as um, for healing or as household goods or for weapons as a way of just bringing the story of Aboriginal people and making them more visual, more, more visible in the story. Yeah, because I guess at this stage when Adelaide was um, writing and living that um, Colonial Victorians were very much in the enterprise of trying to make Aboriginal people invisible, but they weren't. They were very much a part of um, Sydney society at this time, yeah. I would like to talk a bit more about her relationship with her mother because um, obviously they must have had a very close 
relationship. And I would imagine that Martha was quite supportive given that she went with her daughter all the way to Europe. It's something that I spent a lot of time thinking about because the correspondence that we have is often to both women or to one or one woman or the other. And yet, um, so there was another biography written about Adelaide in the 1980s as sort of part of that early wave of recovering women from the archives. Um, but very little mention is made of Martha Ironside in that. And so one of the things I did want to do was bring Martha back into the story as a woman who, um, as a woman as well as a mother and a champion of her daughter, and she most certainly was. So what we know is that um, Martha worked as a piano teacher um, and therefore managed to maintain the family and um, pretty much based on that, um, based on that form of income, and that she managed to generate enough funds to take Adelaide, um, to, to travel with Adelaide, to to London and then Paris and then Italy and then for them to live there for a decade together. But what I started to notice as I meditated upon the sources more and more was that there were also quite strong tensions between the two women as well. And um, sometime in my research I found this very intriguing set of letters from a man named Seymour Kirkup who was a um, expatriate living in Florence. He was actually a British artist who had fled in London after he, his family had lost their money and he had set up in Florence in the 1820s and he had become the sort of doyen of all things to do with Dante and literature and art and he had also become a spiritualist. So he was often, you know, reading crystal balls, et cetera, et cetera. And when Adelaide and Martha went to Florence on one of their tours, they met him and spent quite a lot of time. And, in fact, in these letters from Seymour Kirkup to um, Joseph Seven, who was the man who um, held John Keats as he died, um, he talks about Adelaide and Martha and he says um, you know, Miss Ironside had all these wonderful qualities, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, she read these crystal balls for me, and I believe that she was a painter of the imagination who was on par with none other than my old friend William Blake. You know, she was such a talent. But unfortunately, her vulgar mother, stupid, foolish mother, had taken her away from her real um, calling as a spiritualist and forced her to follow in the way of Rome and doing these well-behaved, stuffy religious paintings that nobody cares for anymore. So Kirk clearly had an opinion about Martha Einstein, which is not very nice but also really quite fascinating, right, because you can imagine that if you were Martha that you would want your daughter to be a successful artist, not to be dabbling in spiritual experiments that could be dangerous for her reputation, and perhaps to choose topics and styles that were going to be um, sellable and popular um, and able to gather the support of the established art world. You would think that as a single mother who, I don't know if she received any financial support from her former husband, but you would think that a single mother would particularly be concerned with her daughter being able to support herself when, you know, they're not independently wealthy, as far as I know. Yep, that's exactly right. So, um, look, there are occasional hints in the archive that there is support coming from her own family um, and, and some support from James Ironside from time to time, although he took up with another woman and had children, um, three children with that woman and so I think most of his um, you know his 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 finances were devoted to his own family and it seems quite clear that shortly before um, Martha and Adelaide left Sydney that there was a rupture between Martha and James and Martha therefore from that point onwards was on her own financially and she made it work you know she did basically um get Adelaide over to Italy she managed the household economy 
And Adelaide managed to send, sell quite a number of works, from including she sold one of her um, wildflower watercolour paintings, which were the original things that sent her off to Paris and then to Rome and made her, her name and made her famous. She sold one of those paintings to the Prince of Wales when he came to visit her studio in um, Italy in 1859. But what we have is a story of female economy and precarity. Here. We have women living in straightened circumstances, really um, in very unstable conditions, really not knowing, trying to make it work, and no doubt um, Martha was anxious and trying to keep her, her exuberant, ambitious daughter on the straight and narrow, and to Seymour Kirkham, that was considered vulgar. So when you get these little sources like that, and he makes these kind of references a few times about Adelaide and Martha, you get these really interesting alternative perspectives on women's lives. And that's what I think is one of the richest things about um their historical record and my working with it is it's very difficult to know exactly what is going on here but these sources provide us with stimulants with which we can speculate about the possibilities the other thing to say is that I think Martha was quite a devout Presbyterian she um, was reasonably evangelical and conservative in her opinions but Adelaide wasn't Adelaide was a spiritualist you know she talked about universal love she talks about her enthusiasm for the invisible as she calls it she scribed crystal balls for Elizabeth Barrett Browning and for Kirkup, she was living the life of a mystic and an, and an artist. And I love that about her. I think that kind of it makes her a much more expansive thinker, which I think would have put her at odds with Martha as well. I mean, and it talks to parts of Adelaide's nature and also the female experience in the 19th century, which I think we often neglect at our peril. And in, you know, a number of um, historians have now, I think, convincingly argued that along with abolition, along with the women's question, uh, that this topic, that this the influence of spiritualism was one of the most influential things about the 19th century because it provided women, often middle-class women, often women from dissenting traditions like Quakerism and Presbyterianism, um, Congregationalism, with a way of having a voice an authority and an expression for their other um, frustrated lives. So they could become moral and spiritual authorities in their homes and sometimes in public too. And um, in the Browning's letters, I found references to them describing Adelaide's performances, which I think is really intriguing because it shows us that Adelaide had a dramatic performative, imaginative personality, and those are the kinds of things I've tried to capture. But you can imagine that if you were Adelaide's mum, you know, a lot of the time you'd be sort of looking through your fingers, just holding your breath and just terrified. <laughs> it wouldn't have been an easy life for Martha, I think. And um, just as a bit of a spoiler alert, what I think is, you know, really terribly moving is that Adelaide dies before she realises her ambitions in 1867 in Rome while she's being tended for uh, to by Martha. And Martha decides that she doesn't want to bury her daughter in Rome. So she embalms Adelaide and brings her back to London, leaves her in the catacombs with the intention of making enough money so that she can bring Adelaide back and have her buried in Sydney um, and have her returned at last to her native land. And that, again, is another incredible expression, I think, of her maternal devotion to her daughter. So one of the things that I've done in the book is try and write their story by occasionally including Martha's voice in it, um, bringing her perspective into the book so that sometimes you see Adelaide and her life through Martha's perspective and sometimes you see Martha through Adelaide's perspective. So it becomes the story of mother and daughter. Um, but in so doing, we can honour 
what Arthur, what Adelaide said about Martha in the very last letter that she wrote that we still have. And she wrote this letter to their to their pastor, Dr. John Dunmore-Lang, just a few weeks before she died. And she said in this, you know, my mother has sacrificed everything to come with me on my arduous undertaking. And she really is to be, you know, loved and admired for that. And so that's why I wanted to, to bring her back into the story. Um, because I think she too was a woman of extraordinary ambition. I mean, after all, she encouraged Adelaide to have those ambitions when it would have been much easier for her to see her daughter married to a wealthy settler. And as we're talking about being a woman before her time and the adventurousness needed to undertake this, um, it did later become very common for Australian artists to go to Europe to get training, to find career success. Um, and even today, you see this, um, I happen to know several opera singers who have followed that same Australia to Europe path for career purposes. Um, but she was doing this before it was cool, especially for women. Yeah. Yeah, she totally was. When Adelaide and Martha left Sydney in June 1855, Adelaide became the first Australian-born artist of any gender to leave Australia to train with the masters overseas. And it was absolutely, you know, about 10, 20 years before she did so. And one of the, um, this was a, became a, a really important part of her international identity and reputation. She often described herself as Miss Australia, as um, the flower from Australia. Um, it was it was extraordinary. The Prince of Wales wanted to meet her because no one had really met an Australian, let alone an Australian woman, let alone one who had decided to commit 10 years of her life to living in Rome, to training with the masters. The Pope was the same. The Pope requested a meeting with Adelaide and her and, and her mother. Um, and during that meeting, Adelaide, who I believe, as well as having a strong personality, a mystical, you know, an imaginative personality, she was also very charming and persuasive because she managed to persuade the Pope to give her permission to, to go and look inside, to go and visit um, a, a monastery so that she could study the art of um, Fra Angelico, a very famous um, pre-Renaissance artist, very popular at the time. Now, at this time, Women were never allowed in monasteries. It was completely impossible. Many female artists had tried to do this, but only Adelaide achieved that. So Adelaide was this kind of person who, who set about blazing trails, and she certainly did that. And when you go through the record and you look at the way that her female colonial friends describe her because many came to meet her or bought her art or, you know, tried to keep the torch alive of her memory after she died, all of them talk about her courage, the fact that she was the first and that she actually gained real recognition, um, the first Australian artist of, to gain real recognition and um and she did. I mean, she was described as the impersonation of genius. She was described as admired. Her work was sold for quite extraordinary amounts of money. She had wealthy patrons, but she died before she realised her potential, I think. And then when her artwork was returned to Sydney, it was eventually sort of um, not well cared for. And some of her greatest works, the the 43 flower watercolours of um, of Australian wildflowers, which made her famous, have been scattered to the winds. So we don't have any remaining examples of those, which is another reason why I wanted to include her wildflowers into the into my book. But the most famous, one of the most famous artworks that she did, which is known as the Pilgrim of Art, which depicts her and her mother on their journey. This was stored in a three-sided shed associated with the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and there it deteriorated beyond repair. So that all we now have is a black and white photo of it that was taken in the in the 1930s. So the neglect that was given to this woman that and her art um, is one of the reasons that I think her story wasn't known. But 
it certainly was at odds with how the reputation that she managed to achieve for herself. To switch focus to your day job, um, I'm actually really intrigued by your title of South Australia's History Advocate with the History Trust of South Australia. So what does that role entail? Well, in this role, this is my day job and I put on my proper hat as a historian and I am a champion for all things to do with history. So that is history as it's done in academic forms, in public forms, in creative forms. Um, It's a version of a role that used to be known as the state historian of South Australia and that role developed in the 1980s and um, there were three or four state historians and their job was pretty much the same sort of job um, as mine, but it was had a specific focus on South Australian historians, making South Australian history relevant to the world and for the world. In this configuration of the job, I'm the inaugural um, history advocate for South Australia, so it's just a new role. It's re- just recovered funding. My job is, yes, to celebrate South Australian stories, and I have to say South Australian history has its own particular taste and timbre and tone, which I do love and would love to talk about with you more and hope to write a book in that area. But um, as well as doing South Australian stories, I'm also championing history. And that means championing history um, both in schools, in, in universities, in the arts sector, in the heritage and tourism section sector, really trying to make the case for history as a vital form of meaning making that can help to give us a great sense of belonging um, and, and connectivity with each other. So I kind of think of history as a giant tree um, and it gives us the deeper the roots the stronger that tree will be when the winds are blowing (laughs) or when there's a drought and the roots need to go down deep to get the water, that history is that kind of root system. And then during the good times, we can really, you know, enjoy the pleasure of its shade even more. So my job is really about making the case for history. And I think that it's a really necessary job, actually, because history is quite a threatened species, not only in our universities at the moment, but in fact, across the whole sway. Um, We see that there's a kind of a taste or an appetite for certain type of histories, military histories, national histories, blokey histories, but the other forms of history, I think, especially in Australia, um, don't always get the attention that they need and deserve. So part of what I'm really interested in is making sure that women's histories, First Nation histories, working class histories, migrant histories, the histories of everybody and anyone who often are not well represented in the record they're the stories that I also want to see. So part of the things I've been doing before I became the history advocate, I had an Australian Research Council grant, which was called um, Historical Craft and Speculative Biography. And in that, I developed a kind of speculative method for how we can ethically um, reuse an informed imagination to to take the little um, traces of the archives that are often left by about these these people who are marginalised from the record and see if we can bring them back to life. So we know that, you know, people who are illiterate, women, blah, 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 basically anyone who wasn't uh, a white man with the money, the economics or the education or the influence to leave behind a record usually doesn't have much of a historical record. They might feature in some newspapers, they might feature in statistics, um, there's often very little that we can know about them. But what that means, Alison, is that so often when we look to the past, it's a really distorted and inaccurate past. It's just full of all white these white men in top hats walking around. It doesn't tell us a lot. And so my mission as a historian has been to think about, well, how can we take those little traces of the archive and actually repeople the past with those all those other figures who were just as influential, just as important, but are otherwise silenced and shadowy and sketchy in the historical record. And so that's what I've kind of dedicated my life to doing and that's what my my own approach has been. And so now I get an opportunity to take that kind of work and do some of it but also support lots of other people to do it in my role as a history advocate. 
So I'm talking about the fact that I think sometimes the end result justifies the means with which we go about that result. And what I mean by that is if the end result is that we get a much richer understanding of the past and the role of women and First Nation people and migrants in it, then I think the means of coming about that richer understanding, which might involve using more imagination, informed imagination and the discipline of context, then I think it's worth it because what we get is a more balanced, a more accurate, or if not accurate, let's not use that word, a more balanced and richer way of understanding the past. And let's face it, history itself was created by, was largely kind of brought into the academic world as a discipline and made to look like it was scientific, but it's not. You know, the, the facts, the fact, the so-called facts and evidence of history are always impartial. They're always, always partial. They're always biased. And so I think we have to bring a political lens to that and a political lens to how we write about women. We have to say, radio, if I just accept your archives as fair income and well-behaved, then we're just going to perpetuate the same silence against women against these people who have been marginalised by the sources. So we have to make a radical act. We have to be ambitious like Adelaide Ironside was and decide upon using techniques that disrupt, you know, those silencing techniques, those silencing implications of the archives. So my work is about, I guess, being a bit radical and disruptive and coming up with techniques that allow those, those silent, shadowy people to be seen and heard once more. One of the things I do love about Adelaide's archive is that you get these glimpses into all sorts of different women. So she has done so many portraits of women at different stages of her life. There's all these letters to and from women of different generations, um, many of whom are Australian, but some are American, some are Scottish, some are Italian, some are English. And what I thought was so rare and wonderful about the art that her archive is not only did I get to represent her and her mother, but I got to represent her grandmother, so three generations of women, and all these other women that supported her life. Some were very wealthy, some were not, some we know almost nothing about. But it shows us that women's lives are always networked. You know, so we're used to these stories of the hero's journey. Typically, it's this independent man who goes off on his own and fights the unknown and climbs mountains and does all these things, and he's a hero, right, that hero's journey. Um, Joseph Carlyle, who I think Adelaide may have met, a, a close friend of Ruskin, he once said, really, history is nothing more than the biography of great men. But what I found in writing the biography of Adelaide and Martha, that the heroine's journey is one that only exists because of all the other women in her life. It doesn't just take a village to raise a woman like Adelaide Ironside. It takes a village of women loving and looking after each other. Join us next time on the Infinite Women podcast. And remember, well-behaved women rarely make history.